If you want to go ahead and make your way back to your seats. If you have a Bible uh, or a device upon which you can access the Bible, we're going to be in Romans, Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, which means we'll start in verse 8, Romans 1 verse 8. And so if you, if you have a Bible or a, a phone or an, an iPad or something that you access Scripture on, go ahead and get opened up to there. And while you get situated, um, I want to start with a story that I, I heard uh, someone give a number of years ago. And it's a, a dream that either uh, the church father Irenaeus or Augustine had And the dream goes like this, that he was standing with his back to a cliff. And he looked back and saw kind of the reality behind him. And then when he looked back forward, he realized that there there was a large mass of people running toward him. And as they're moving toward him, he realizes that they're not slowing down. And it doesn't appear that they have any intention to stop. And so he takes another peek back over his shoulder at the cliff, sees that anybody who continues to run, if they were to go off of that cliff, has no hope of surviving the fall. And he turns back around and he begins doing everything he can to stop as many people as possible. And as one individual standing there uh, along a large cliff ledge, he can only do so much. But as he's stopping people, they're turning around and beginning to do the same. And they start to fan out along the edge of this cliff and they can't stop everybody, but they're doing everything that they can to stop as many people as possible. This individual had knowledge of the cliff and he felt obligated to share it with everyone that he possibly could. Not only did he feel obligated, he was eager to do so. He doesn't want to see anybody perish. And so he's obligated and he's eager, but he's also one other thing, and that's unashamed. If he's got knowledge of what's awaiting anybody who goes over the cliff, he's got no shame in sharing that knowledge with as many people as possible. He has to. He wants to. And he can, or he has the confidence to. Obligated, eager, and unashamed. I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. Listen for those words. This is what it says. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of salvation to every or the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I'm obligated. I am eager. I am not ashamed. Did you catch all three of those? Paul has to. He wants to. And he can, or he has the confidence to share the gospel. With all of his life and with all of his energy, he can do no other than share the message of life to those who are spiritually racing off of an eternal cliff. We're working over the course of this year to answer the question, what does it mean to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? As we look through the book of Romans, we said one of those things is that it means that a follower of Jesus is gospel-centered. And so as we work our way through the book of Romans, we're answering the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, this morning we're going to see that followers of Jesus are obligated to, eager for, and unashamed of the beautiful power of the gospel. God the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul in the letter to Romans gives three I am statements. I am obligated. I am eager. I am not ashamed. I'm unashamed. And he gives three statements about the power of the gospel. And so we're just going to walk our way through those. Look at verse 14. That's where the I am's start. Followers of Jesus are obligated to the gospel. I'm obligated. He says, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. He's obligated to all. Greek and barbarian. He's writing to uh, this, these churches, this Roman audience there in the city of Rome. And he uses the word barbarian, which is an onomatopoeia. It was a sound that was meant to sound like, a word that was meant to sound like what it was like for a Greek person to hear someone speak in another language, a barbarian. They don't speak our language. That's what that word was intended to convey. Paul says, I'm obligated to the wise and the foolish, to a partially Jewish audience there in Rome. Wise was understanding scripture, knowing who Yahweh, the Lord is, living in right relationship with him, and everything else is foolish. Paul says, I'm obligated to you who are wise, or would call yourselves wise, and to everyone that you would call foolish. In verse 16, he mentions Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles. Paul's driving home a point here. All people. He is obligated to them, or he is indebted to them. Everybody. And it's Good to understand indebtedness here for a second. And so I want to do a little illustration. So Brett, will you come up here? Brett has no idea what's about to happen. We didn't talk beforehand. He's an unwilling but willing participant. Brett, if I told you that just because I appreciate you and I love you and we're friends, I'm going to give you $100 Have you recently done anything for me that would merit me giving you $100? No. It's just, I want to give you $100. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to pay me back. Here's $100. (laughs) (laughs) Brett, at the moment, 
Brett is in no debt to me. I gave him the money out of the goodness of my own heart because I love him and we're friends. He didn't have to do anything to earn it, so he wasn't indebted on the front end. And he doesn't have to pay me back. He's not indebted on the back end. But now what if I told Brett this? I also have $100 for Mitch Heiser. He's not here. The only way Mitch Heiser gets the $100 is if you go and tell Mitch Heiser that I have $100 for him. What would be your next action? I would call Mitch. You would call Mitch. Because now, what are you? I'm a... You're obligated. He's in debt, both to Mitch... Mitch could have $100, but primarily to me. I have $100 that I want to give Mitch. All you've got to do is tell him. Brett is indebted now. He's obligated to do something now. That's our obligation to the gospel. I'm going to take that back. Okay. (laughs) Everybody give Brett a round of applause. (laughs) Indebted. That's what it is to be indebted to the gospel, indebted to the God of the gospel. He has given you something freely. You don't owe him anything for it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't have to owe on the front side that if I do fill in the blank, then I will get the gospel. He has given that to you by grace and let you know that it is for everyone. And it's your responsibility to let them know. You're indebted to the people that need to know, certainly. But you're more indebted to the God of the gospel. As a follower of Jesus, you are obligated to the gospel. As anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your obligation is only to everybody. I'm going to say that again. As someone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your obligation is only to everyone, which sounds a little bit overwhelming until you think about the number of people who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't necessarily Brett's job to tell every single individual about the good news of the gospel. It should be Brett's heart that everyone would come to know. And he works in partnership with the entirety of the global church to share the message of the gospel because we're indebted to other people, but primarily we're indebted to the God of the gospel. That should be the heartbeat of a Christian. That's the heartbeat of Paul. There's a father in our congregation with a couple of... uh, He's got three kids, but two of them are young, and young kids have a lot of energy. And so sometimes, just to get rid of the energy, they will go to Hy-Vee, get themselves a race car shopping cart, and just walk circles. And they've struck up a relationship with a woman there who works back in the bakery. And every time they come in, as they're just walking off their energy, she will give the boys a free little treat so that they can eat it in the cart. It would be enough for most parents to say, I'm just glad that there's someone else who's in this with me, and she's willing to lovingly help my children as we just try to entertain ourselves for an hour and get rid of some energy. But that's not enough for this individual because he's obligated, indebted, not by the cookies, but by the gospel. 
And so that relationship has turned into an opportunity to ask how she could be prayed for. It's turned into an opportunity to ask if she would go to church, if she understands the gospel, if she knows who Jesus is. That's what it is to be indebted. It's not about the cookies. It's not about some sort of trade. It's about the free, good news message of the gospel that is for all people. Paul says, I'm obligated to everybody. As a follower of Jesus, we are obligated to the gospel. At the core of this idea of being gospel-centered is the truth that having heard and placed your faith in Christ, the entire purpose of your life has been fundamentally altered. That's what the gospel does. The gospel alters, clarifies, and solidifies the purpose of our lives. Just think about Paul, the author of the book of Romans. He's racing upward through the ranks of Jewish leadership. He's persecuting the church, achieving this renown within the Jewish community. He's literally giving the stamp of approval to the martyrdom of early Christians. And then he has this moment on the road to Damascus where he sees Jesus. And in that moment, literally that exact moment, the entire purpose of his life is fundamentally altered. He has experienced grace and it has changed everything. It's rearranged Everything. It's reversed everything. It's clarified and solidified what the rest of Paul's life is going to look like from that moment forward, and he does not waver. He is obligated. People have to hear. They're running off the cliff. He knows it's there, and he must tell them. He has to. Followers of Jesus are obligated to the gospel, but followers of Jesus are also eager for the gospel. There is a stark difference between having to do something and wanting to do something. If you're a parent and you've got kids who do chores, they probably regularly let you know that there's a stark difference between having to do that chore and wanting to do that chore. There's even a difference between wanting to do something and being eager to do something. Think about your time uh, of being engaged if you're married. It wasn't just that you wanted to marry that person. It's that if you were engaged for six months or nine months or however long it was, you woke up and most mornings thought to yourself, it's only X number of days until I wake up with that person. I'm eager to marry them. That's different than just wanting There's an eagerness. Paul says he's eager to preach or to share the gospel. Jump back up to verse 9. Look at the way he talks about his eagerness. God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And he's even tried. Look at verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now. There's an eagerness. It's not just that he kind of wants to. It's that he desires it. He longs for it. And what he longs to go and do is to share the gift of the gospel to those who've not heard it, but also to those who have heard it. He's writing to churches. I want to come to you, churches in Rome, and share the gospel not only to you, but with you out to the rest of the people in this city. He's eager for it. He wants to. If you're a note taker, jot down 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Listen to the way Paul talks about his eagerness and his obligation. 
He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I'm compelled to preach. I want to. I am eager. But woe to me if I do not preach the gospel because I'm obligated. They're both there for him. Obligated and eager. And then last, followers of Jesus are not ashamed. They're unashamed of the gospel. Verse 16 One of Romans' more recognizable verses, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's, again, a drastic difference between wanting to do something and being able or having the confidence to do something. When my car breaks down, I need to fix it. It has to be fixed. I want to fix it so I can go places conveniently, but I hit the rub right here. I have no ability to fix it. I lack all confidence in attempting to fix it. I simply cannot do it. And then stack on top of that that I'm a little bit ashamed that at the age of 32, I would need to call a friend and say, I don't know how to do basic maintenance on my car. What might that person think of me? Now you all know. I don't know how to do basic maintenance on my car. I just can't do it. And there's a level of shame in that. I'm ashamed of it. Something stands in my way from moving from the realm of I have to and I want to and getting into the realm of I can or I'm confident to do it. Paul says he's not ashamed. He has the ability. He has the confidence. The issue isn't simply that he must share the gospel. It isn't simply that he wants to or is eager to share the gospel. It's that he can share it. He's unashamed. And that's going to lead him in the rest of verses 16 and 17 into three unbelievable statements about why it is that he's obligated, eager, and unashamed. Followers of Jesus are obligated to, eager for, and unashamed of, and this is what 16 and 17 are going to tell us, the beautiful power of the gospel. Verses 16 and 17 serve as the thesis statement for the rest of the letter of Romans. He's going to spend the entirety of the rest of the letter unpacking these two verses, and they're packed with statements about the beauty of the gospel. And the first one is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's important to note that the gospel doesn't just bring some power, though it does do that. It doesn't just give us some power, although by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we do have that as well. What is really important, Paul says, is that the gospel is the power of God. Primarily that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel's power is seen in its ability to completely change minds, hearts, life orientation, our understanding of everything that happens, the way people relate to one another, and so on. Most of all, it is powerful because it does what no other power on earth can do. It can save us from sin, reconcile us to God, and guarantee us a place in the kingdom of God forever. Paul knows that power personally. It reordered everything in his life. And as if the power of God for salvation isn't beautiful enough, he tacks on the end part to everyone who simply believes. If you were to scan your way back through Romans 1, verses 8 through 17, you would notice that the word faith appears five times. Once in verse 8, once in verse 12, three times in verse 17. If you add in believe in verse 16, it's six times. 
Greek, barbarian, wise, foolish, Jew, Gentile, American, African, Asian, French, German, poor, rich, smart, not smart. Paul's obligated to, he's eager for and unashamed of the gospel message because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who simply puts their faith in it. And he's going to spend the rest of his letter walking through the truth of that statement. The message is so beautiful and so simple and it's so glorious. And he goes on in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's the second because. Why is he obligated, eager, and unashamed? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean exactly? The righteousness of God is revealed. Well, God's righteous character is revealed. God's righteousness is an attribute. It's part of who he is. But it's also that God's righteous act is revealed. The actual action of saving humanity itself. And then third, it's a status that's conferred to us. That those who place their faith in Jesus are made righteous. We're given the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God that is revealed is an attribute of his, an action that he has taken, and a status conferred to us. All three contribute to the beauty of the gospel message. A good summary of that would be this, that a righteous God has done a righteous act in order to make you righteous. Why am I obligated to, eager for, and unashamed of the gospel? Because a righteous God has done a righteous thing that makes it possible for me to be declared righteous. And it's been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of that happens by faith, from faith to faith. God has graciously done the acting. You received the gift through faith. And that is beautiful. And then third, the last portion there of verse 17, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel allows followers of Jesus to live by faith. That statement at the very end of verse 17, the righteous will live by faith, it's a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. You can find it in Habakkuk 2.4. And you can think about this two ways. Followers of Jesus will live by faith. Those who have been made righteous by the grace of God through faith live the rest of their lives out of that faith. We talked about that last week, the obedience of faith. Faith isn't a one-time act that saves you, and then you kind of move on to the weightier matters of following Jesus, of obedience. No, faith is a perpetual state of living for a Christian. We're not just saved by our faith, we live by it from the moment of our salvation forward. But then there's the Yoda way of saying that sentence. That by faith, the righteous will live. Let me say it again. By faith, followers of Jesus will live. They'll live eternally, literally moving from death to life. But they'll also live temporally, have a fullness of life here and now. Followers of Jesus will live by their faith, but by their faith, followers of Jesus will live. It's part of the beautiful power of the gospel. 
that by it we live and that we live by it. I want us to keep answering the question as we work through Romans. What does it mean to live a gospel-centered life? What Paul is saying in verse 17 is that what it means to live a gospel-centered life is that the faith in the gospel has given you life and that now you live your life by faith in the gospel, all aspects of it. That's part of the beauty of the gospel message. By beholding the simply stated realities of Romans 1, 16 and 17, we find that we're not only obligated to, but eager for and unashamed of the gospel. Our hearts cannot help but move in that direction. Followers of Jesus are obligated to, eager for, and unashamed of the beautiful power of the gospel. The beauty of the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born into flesh, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, being buried in the grave, resurrecting over the power of sin and death on the third day, ascending to the right hand of the Father and seated there right now, but coming back again to put a full and final end to sin. The beauty of that gospel message makes us say, I have to share it. I want to share it. And I can. To have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin is to have had your life reordered in such a way that this heartbeat of Paul becomes the heartbeat of every follower of Jesus. It means that we understand that all of humanity is running off the cliff spiritually, but you have the answer as to how not to. And the beauty of the message is so wonderful that you're not only obligated to give it to people, but you're eager and unashamed to. You have to, you want to, and you can So what's the application of all this? What do we do with it? Well, I want to give you just three things here. The first is to behold the beauty of the gospel. I want to talk for just a minute about shame, specifically in the context that Paul is talking about here. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which means it is possible to be ashamed of the gospel. Shame is a powerful and destructive emotion. There's a lot that could be said about shame, but I want to take just a focused look here for a second about what it means to not be ashamed or to be ashamed of the gospel. Guilt and shame often get confused with one another. Guilt says, I feel bad because I did something. It comes to us internally. Shame is different. Shame comes externally. It says, I don't know or I do know what other people are going to think of me if I do this thing. Now you're shameful. Because of what they're going to think, or because of what they do think, I have shame placed upon me. It's external. It arrives to us from another source. Whether intentionally or directly or indirectly or unintentionally, someone else creates shame within us. In our world today, given the external perceptions that exist within people in regard to the church, I do think that many Christians, if they're honest, have some shame in regard to the gospel. We can't help but ask ourselves, if I live according to the truth of the gospel and the truth of Scripture, what is that person going to think of me? And oftentimes, we don't have to wonder what that person is going to think. We know what that person is going to think, and so we get ashamed. It builds shame into us. 
It's hard not to think about how our increasingly secular and humanistic society views us as people who hold to the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Bible. So when I say behold the beauty of the gospel, I'm saying shift your focus. I think a lot of our shame arrives because we're looking at the wrong thing. Rather than continually beholding the greatness of the glory of God and the beauty of his saving work in the gospel, we often look at the ugliness of the world around us and the scorn of our society toward Christians. And when that's your focus, you can't help but feel a little bit of shame. But if you were to shift the focus and look at the beauty of the gospel, you can't help but be overwhelmed by it. And doing this, at the same time, helps us understand our indebtedness. When we're beholding the scorn of the world around us, we can't help but feel indebted to the world around us. And that indebtedness looks like a whole lot of silence or a whole lot of I put my faith under a basket, if you will. But when we're beholding the beautiful power of the gospel, we can't help but feel indebted to God to speak that message to those who are running headlong off of that spiritual cliff. If you're looking for a very practical way to do that, I want to I give you a way to behold the gospel this week. Jot down Colossians 1, 15 to 22. It starts with one of Scripture's most breathtaking accounts of who Jesus is, that he's the visible of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, that he's before all things and that all things hold together through him, that he's the beginning of the body and the church. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that He might come to have first place in everything, that God was pleased to have the fullness of his deity dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And then verse 21 says this, Once you were alienated and hostile in your mind, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. It's hard to feel ashamed of the gospel if you saturate yourself in its beauty. That the greatness and the supremacy of Christ from all of eternity, the Son of God put on flesh, he came into the world, he died on the cross in order to take you who was once alienated from him because of the sinfulness that exists within you and to present you faultless before God. I would consider not just reading Colossians 1, 15 to 22 over the course of this week, but memorizing it. Embed it deep within your heart. Soak yourself in its truth. By beholding the gospel and its beauty and allowing it to just permeate our hearts, it's really hard to be ashamed of it. But you got to get your view going the right direction. Secondly, parents, teach your children to behold the beauty of the gospel. Be intentional about it every day. Based on the way you talk to your kids, what you prioritize your time with, ask yourself the question, what am I cultivating obligation, eagerness, and unashamedness toward in my child? I can find you a dump load of kids who feel obligated, eager, and unashamed of their love for their instrument or their academic success or their activity or their sport. Similarly, I can find you a dump load of parents who are working to continually cultivate that obligation, eagerness, and unashamedness in their children. 
I could find you far fewer kids who are cultivating inside themselves an obligation and eagerness and an unashamedness for the gospel. And which would you rather have your child be? What are you helping your child behold regularly? What are you setting their gaze toward by the way that you talk to them and the way you use your time as a family? Our children's ministry has put together a resource to help you do exactly this. Over the course of uh, the year, they're putting out these little booklets called Eat This Book, Eat The Book. It's geared toward helping your children learn to behold the gospel. Every day there are five short readings, usually 20 verses or less, and it comes with a memory verse and some questions to discuss, and it gives you the opportunity to talk with your kids about the curriculum that they're going to be doing in Kids Point before they do it so that you as the parent have the first opportunity to share the truth of the gospel from that section of scripture with your children. You get to be the one that points them to Christ. You get to be the one that sets their gaze on the beauty of the gospel. The first little booklet is six weeks long because that's how long it is until their curriculum in this cycle ends. So last week was week one. Your kids probably brought home the little bag with the booklet in it. Commit to five more weeks of that. And see what it does. How does it change your conversations around the dining room table? How does it change the things you talk about in the car? How does it change the way you frame for them their other activities and the stuff they do, which are wonderful things, but they can't be the ultimate thing. And at the end of that little booklet, a new one will come out that's 13 weeks long. I think you'll have within you a desire to make that commitment going forward. But give it a five-week shot from this point forward. And then last but not least, give yourself some practical tools. Some of our feelings of guilt for not sharing the gospel arise from not knowing how. I don't try to fix my car because I have no idea what's going on when I open the hood. I have very little idea how it works that I put my key in there and it starts. I just, I don't know and I'm too ashamed to try to figure out the answers at this point in my life. We do the same thing when it comes to sharing the gospel. We feel shame because we think to ourselves, if I start to share the gospel with that person and they ask a question that I don't have an answer to, what are they going to think of me? It's easier if I just don't do it. Well, give yourself some tools. On September 9th of last year, we did a first evangelism training with a group called No Place Left. We're going to do a second one. It's coming up very soon here in January. And it will give you tools for not just the moment of sharing when that opportunity arises, but also tools for how to follow up with people and have further conversations with them. If you want more information about that, find Joe Stewart. He would love nothing more than to tell you all about that training. A good number of people within our church did it back in September, and some of those individuals who took or went through the training are going to be teaching it this time. We encourage you to give yourself some practical tools. Followers of Jesus are obligated to, eager for, and unashamed the beautiful power of the gospel. We're going to end our time in worship this morning. Let's pray together for a moment.